Holy moly, everybody, we're finally on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Yay. So, um, yeah, this has been a long time coming. I should have done this a lot earlier. Although the approval process did take about two weeks. And let me tell you, it's not that hard. You really just have to submit it. Um, and now that I've posted it on Apple Podcast, I realized that I need to do a lot of work to make this thing more unified, more clear as to, you know, what episode is in what season, et cetera, et cetera. And so if anybody wants to help me with that, please reach out. And if you do feel so inclined to show your support for this podcast with a few clicks, um, then go follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, follow it on Spotify. I also have an Instagram you can check out at the Talking Brains Podcast on Instagram. Go download, listen, like, comment, or um, in the case of Apple Podcasts, review. Um, all of these things are highly appreciated. They really give me some good feedback. And yeah, I enjoy I enjoy hearing back from the audience. So thank you guys. Thanks for listening. I know a lot of you are out there listening to this. And it really means a lot to me. And so without further ado, let's introduce our guest for today. Our guest for today is Dr. Raphael Ritson-Williams. He is a professor at Santa Clara University and a marine biologist. He focuses on studying coral and specifically coral genetics and how corals respond to coral bleaching and other environmental stressors. He's a great guest. We talk about a lot of things today, not just coral. We talk about raising kids. We talk about learning and creativity in the classroom. We also talk about the... The role of climate change as a whole, and specifically the role of climate change in corals and other marine species. So we kind of cover a lot of topics here. He's a really great guest, and I really enjoyed talking to him. And so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And now I'm not going to bore you with too much longer of an intro, so let's get back to the episode. See you on the other side. think it's a really neat i've never you know greg's my first child right and uh i've never never seen anyone absorb information as as quickly and easily as he does right now and so i feel bad that we're not a bilingual family like i really wish i could teach him another language right now because this is a perfect time to teach him a language and i'm also not very like like i love good music but i couldn't play a guitar to you know for anything and i'm also sorry that i'm not teaching him sort of music right now because I think this time is just like literally I'll say a whole sentence and he'll repeat it back and understand what it meant you know what I mean like he's 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 like a sponge right now anything you say to him he just absorbs and and he gets it and I don't know if that's typical of kids or if he's smart or what but it's really eye-opening how much you could learn at this age again like like it's an age where I think you forget everything but I have a feeling that some things like going outside and playing on the beach and those kinds of things are going to stick with him throughout his life, right? Like, like if you get used to going to the beach when you're three, you probably want to do it the whole rest of your life. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you talk about the, the sort of learning. I was listening to a lecture the other day and someone was talking about how parents just intuitively without any, um, without any knowledge, you know, when they're little, they do the baby, baby talk, like raise your voice and stuff. That's just natural. But then um, he says, even up until, you know, until they're like kids, like, you know, 11, 12, they, they will consciously speak to the kids in a slightly more complicated way than they can understand. So it's almost like pulling them along a string. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I've start. I found myself starting to try to use different vocabulary for him so that he's building his his sort of knowledge base. Um, 
so yeah, I think that's interesting. It's, it is something about trying to teach them something. It's really cool. Is it, e- is it easier than teaching um, undergraduates? <laughs> well, gosh, there's less to grade. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's different. I think, I think it's easier because there's no preconceived notion. You know, like they, he doesn't have an opinion already. So you can kind of, it, and it makes me realize how like you can easily brainwash your child to be whatever political venue you choose to be. You know what I mean? Like, like no wonder most children are the same political party as their parents because, because right now you would tell him, you know, like, look, this is great or this is really bad. And, and so, yeah, I could see how that sort of sticks with the kids. Easier to teach. I don't know. I think it's a different, you've, you've also, he's, I would say it's harder because you've got to teach him things he's interested in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I, I couldn't teach him the range of things I could teach you guys. Um, and you've got to stay again, like he'll throw a fit if you're not playing with the blocks or doing a puzzle. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. I've, I've gotten a few student reviews that sound kind of like a fit, but overall I think people like my teaching style. <laughs> so, you know, kids like Greg have this kind of innate curiosity um, in them that, you know, about things they're interested in, maybe where they're kind of discovering the world. How do you inspire that? How do you kind of like try and go about that in the classroom? Um, I feel like a lot of people lose that sort of, you know, as they quote unquote grow up or as they, you know, reach adulthoods that some of that little, that fire starts to die. How do you bring that into the classroom? (coughs) Excuse me. Um, yeah, I think, I think what's, you know, for me, like I teach biology, right. And, and I teach a whole range of things. Like I teach ecology all the way through genetics and, and molecular biology. And I think what's to, the way this, and, and I, I think this question is, is exactly pertinent to the way I teach because I think stimulating curiosity is how people learn, right? So fundamentally you must stimulate their curiosity for them to want to know anything. And learning isn't about taking a test. It's, it's about learning, right? Like, like something needs to be cemented in your brain and there's all sorts of ways of doing that. And it ends up taking a test is a terrible one. And so really the way to generate learning for me is to generate that curiosity, right? And so even if you're not interested in a topic, I feel like it's my job to stimulate your curiosity. And I think in biology, that's easy because it's amazing. It's like magic, right? <laughs> like our cells are in our bodies and they build a whole body and, the, and it makes a nose and an eye and a brain. And those are all like super different things, but it's all based on this like fundamental genetic code that programs every cell to do its thing. And then there's differential gene expression to make a tongue. And then there's differential gene expression to make a hair, you know, like that's to me is just amazing. <laughs> I can't get over how crazy biology is. And then, and then like my love, my passion is biodiversity. Right. And you start looking at all the different creatures in the world. There are some weird creatures that do some weird things. So I really look for, I almost teach like, in fact, I did this for my, um, I taught at, at Santa Clara, I taught this um, endangered ecosystems class, which was for non-majors. And I actually integrated a trivia portion into the class to get the students engaged because trivia is one of those things. It's like, everyone wants to know a little trivia and it ends up that science is mostly little tidbits of trivia, right? It's like, this is the moon is this far away from the earth or there's 10 billion cells in your body, right? And, and to me, those trivia facts are incredible. And I think I could boil down any molecular biologic process to be these like amazing trivia facts. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do in the class, stimulate people's curiosity, because then they'll remember it. It's, you know, I, at least when I was in college, I was memorizing things the night before the test. And then I was forgetting them the night after the test. <laughs> right. And so for me, like, I, I didn't really get that much out of college because I, I didn't have, I didn't feel like it was really that exciting. But like in, uh, in genetics, I'm, I'm working on my lecture for heritability. <clears throat> and it's amazing that, that this like inheritance of traits passes down through generations and that there's recombination, but the recombination isn't actually the parents, it's the grandparents that recombine in the chromosomes that we have. And so the, the pathway is complex. So I think it's appropriate to have a teacher to understand that. But fundamentally, this idea that brown eyes or, you know, curly hair is a feature that passes through all your ancestors is incredible, right? Like, like that's, that's kind of amazing. Um, 
and then there's all sorts of cool things. So yeah, I think I think that curiosity that kids have is is actually the the trick to being a good teacher, right? And I think the bad teachers don't stimulate your curiosity. They're like, this is the fact, and it goes left to right, you know. And and the and what I try to do um, is to just get people excited about the things that are going on around them because it's an amazing planet, really. When you think about life, you know, and you go to Mars and there's no one there and you go to Venus and there's no one there. And so like for me, biology is, and, and, you know, you, you learn this in school to some extent, but it's the combination of all the sciences. And so to me, it's the most complex because physics is, is the basis of all the sciences, right? Electrons and atoms are attracted to each other. And then chemistry is how many atoms, combined to form a molecule and then biology is like how do those molecules behave in a living organism and that's all sorts of craziness right like psychology and uh all the laws of physics and and so for me it's and and in fact that's why i'm drawn to ecology is because it's that interaction of life with with the environment and that like there's the physical world that we must breathe in <laughs> and that an organism must have evolved to be able to breathe in that physical environment and and so for me it's that complexity that's the most exciting and and while it's complex and hard to learn uh it's really like it's really interesting so i think i think maybe i never lost that curiosity or something at least in biology and that helps me sort of drive the curiosity in other people, hopefully. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I don't, I don't think I've lost it a bit either. I feel like people who know me would, would tell you that I, I'm sort of curious about everything, you know, I'm, in my free time, I'm like learning things and watching documentaries, but it's sort of why I started this podcast is to do what you talked about is it, this podcast started as, you know, little short videos on Facebook of me. The first one was me telling people like, look at your brain. Like just if you, if you haven't taken a second to like, look at what your brain is, like how many cells are in your brain? Okay. Like billions of cells, billions and billions of cells. How many connections are in between those, you know, that your whole range of brain, you know, billions and billions and billions of connections. And then on top of that, it's, it's compartmentalized into different areas and it's just eat and each connection is, you know, so much more complicated than, you know, say a, a zero and one on a computer. So, um, yeah, and imagine looking at it like from an ant's perspective, there's just a big mass of gray cell, you know, like, like the fundamentally the magic of biology is that these cells make up this, I don't know what consciousness, right? That's incredible that, that, that can happen. It's sort of the, the, the complexity inherent in, in a human brain is amazing, but it's fundamentally just made made up of ACs and Ts and Gs, right? <laughs> it's like it's it, the code itself is so simple, but the complexity is really um, that scales up from that code is really incredible. I was I was um, listening to a few podcasts recently, and I don't know if you if you think about this at all, but um, no, I'm sort of kind of all over the map. I I sort of think that all maybe all religions kind of have something in common. They're tapping into a something at least but there's this theory that like biology in general and specifically the human brain is almost like nature and physics organizing itself into an antenna sort of for a consciousness field that is like if you know what i mean just kind of swimming and so that uh, it's just interesting to think about that especially with the brain um, and then you can even think about you know simple nervous systems like you have in coral like you know how what is their level of of consciousness as we as we think about it yeah yeah that's interesting um i think that the consciousness thing is tricky right it's it's sort of it's a very human thing but i don't know how we would know if something else was conscious right and so it's like is a tree conscious we know that trees communicate they send chemicals to each other they respond to to being cut down and so what at what level is their consciousness yeah, it's a really, I think that whole existential idea of, of you know, um, human and gods and souls and is so interesting to me because it's such a, it's such a construct of our consciousness. And I'm so curious to know if it's, if it's a, a common theme throughout the tree of life or if it's something restricted to mammals or is it only human, right? Like, and, and if it's only humans, why? <laughs> 
why, why did has on the evolutionary tree why has this branch gone over here and and made this consciousness right like like yeah like you say maybe it's an antenna maybe it's a connection um it's so interesting and it's it's a very you know i think we're talking about this before that idea of being self-aware is really interesting to me and so it's like a human being you know, cares about how he looks, right? In the morning, it's like, oh, I got to brush my hair. Um, but does a squirrel care about how he looks when he wakes up? You know, like, is he going to impress the girl squirrels? And so he's got to, you know, look good. <laughs> does he know that he's different than that other squirrel? Does he even know what that other squirrel is? Does he know that's the same species? You know, like, like all those things. I think there's, uh, for me, biology is interesting because there's these certain laws, right? Like, sexual reproduction is the key to recombination and genetic diversity which derives you know evolution basically and so so sex is really important that's a fundamental sort of law in biology and so sure there's a lot of behavior that drives sex and attracting a mate and thus sexual selection and, and you know birds with pretty feathers and all that stuff um but but do is that just a a mechanism of creating offspring, if you know what I mean? Is it just sort of hardwired in that, that that has to happen or, or is it something that, that the animals, you know, do they have a connection, you know, like, like humans do when, when they're, you know, when they're married and things. And so I don't know, it's interesting because there are some other monogamous animals, right. And, and clearly they stay with the same mate the whole time. And so is that a, a personal connection or is it just convenience? It's like, well, I don't have to go to the bar anymore and find any more birds. And so I'll just, you know, keep the same bird I've had the whole time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or you take, you then you take sort of dolphins and then kind of way out there, like octopus, octopi, I guess as well, you know, yeah. they have that, yeah. that, that awareness to like sense their surroundings and then completely change their shape and form to like be exactly like it is. So it, it takes some level of maybe it's a, almost like a computer, but it takes some level of a understanding that this is what this looks like. And there's people, there's things that are coming to get me and I'm going to make myself look exactly like that. A yeah. lot of the, like a lot of camouflage you see, you know, maybe on land is, is nothing like that. If you think about it. Yeah, no, it's all, it's all like, it's, it's, it's place-based, right? Like a stick in like looks like the stick and so he's got to hang out on the stick to look like the stick whereas the octopus is really and and you know the octopus brains are really big and complex for the body size and and so that we think that they're very smart animals um just like a dolphin is and i think i think what's interesting about a dolphin is that there is a a community there right like a dolphin lives in a pod or killer whales are great examples like there's these examples of when the mother dies the grandmother takes care of the calf and so there is some family relationship in killer whales right and they recognize the family um octopus is interesting because they're solitary and so do they do they have that same level of self-recognition do they know you know and and then they die when their babies are born so there's much less like kin relationship, but the older lived thing, you know, elephants and killer whales, those guys, they, they know their family. And, and so, and they have an investment in their genetics being persisting. And so they are, are dedicated to, to helping that family. And so, and I think, you know, all the studies that were done on the, on the mountain gorillas and things were really revealing in terms of these creatures have feelings and emotions and they're in interacting with each other at a very society, what we would call societal level. Right. And so I think, yeah, for them, there's, there's definitely some awareness and consciousness of, of what they are. You know, the fact that they don't build cities maybe is smart. <laughs> maybe we don't need cities. <laughs> they're, they're actually doing the right, the, the right way. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. When you think about, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that like inspires me is that sort of, you know, what level are, are these guys on? When you think about, you know, for yourself, what are some like, I don't know, some instances or some, some things in your life that have just been like, oh, this is why I, I got into science or this is why I got into studying, you know, right, corals or, or anything like that. Do you have any specific examples? Yeah. I mean, for me, I love being outside. And so it was always kind of a mechanism of doing stuff outside. I'm also like, like you say, I'm still really curious. And so the thing I love about science is that I have this independence to ask whatever question I want. I can go outside 
and for me, right, I'm a marine biologist, so I'll go scuba diving and I'll see an interaction. I'll see two things interacting and then I can, I can ask why <laughs> I can actually pursue that question. I can, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't have to report to my office and type up the numbers for the accounting of the, of the energy company. I can go out and do experiments to figure that out. And so for me, science is this, is like the, the curiosity, like you said, forever. Right. And, and, and what's kind of magical about science is that you can ask any question you want. Um, you can't, you don't always get money to research those questions, but fundamentally, if you're a good scientist, you can write a grant to, to, to get paid to do whatever research you want, as long as it's, you know, fundable by the grant agency. And that's ends up being a lot of different things if you're a good writer. So for me, I just love that process of discovery. It's sort of, it's, it's so fun to be the first person to figure something out. I have a funny story. When I was in, in Guam getting my master's degree, I was scuba diving and I was working on flatworm diversity and flatworms in, in the marine environment are, are, can be big, you know, the size of a silver dollar or a quarter and super colorful. And they're really unknown. I think over, I think it was like 60% of the worms I found in Guam, I must've found like 40 species. 60% of those were new to science. Nobody had named them. Nobody had described them. Nobody had a picture of them. Right. And that to me was super exciting. Like I'm the first person to ever like take a picture of this creature. And then, and, and so one day I was collecting flatworms and, and my friend was working on cowries, which is kind of a little snail that lives underwater. And I put them in the same jar and, uh, and he needed the genetics of the cowrie. So he needed it live. And then I got back to the, to the lab and I was going to give him the cowrie and I looked in the jar and, and it was empty. The shell was empty. I was like, that's so weird. I know I picked that up live because I needed the DNA. And then I looked at the flatworm and it was really thick and fat and, and it had just eaten the cowrie. And I went and talked to my invertebrate zoology professor. I'm like, Hey, you know, this is crazy. Like this flatworm just ate cowries. I've never heard of that before. He's like, I've never heard of that before either. <laughs> and so I started doing research on it and, and, you know, I started testing what they would eat and they ate all these things. And then I was like, well, how do they do that? Like, how could they ever get a snail out of its shell? They don't have any hard part. There's no like knife to pry it out or anything. And it, and it ends up, um, I was working in a chemistry lab and we figured out that they actually produce this really potent nerve toxin that uh, paralyzes the snails and then they can pull them out of their shells. And so that whole process, and that probably took me a year to figure that out, that it was that toxin and, and do the ecology of it all. And, um, and another year to write up the paper. Uh, but, but that process, the whole, all the steps of like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Nobody's ever seen this before. Nobody even knows that this thing eats this thing, let alone what species it is. And, and it doesn't even have a name. It still doesn't have a name, that flower. Um, and so that whole process to me was so fun. It was just like, I love that about science. And, and uh, even though I'm not doing a lot of research this year because, because of COVID and I've been locked down, I started a an algae quadrat in the tide pools in, in half moon bay, because I'm, I'm just curious to see like, how does the algae change during the year? And so I want to see if I can track seasonal changes. Nobody's paying me to do that, but it doesn't cost me anything either. I can walk out there and take a hundred pictures in a day. And then I'll be at the end of this year, I'll be able to answer the question. Do algae communities change over time? Is there a seasonal impact in the tide pools of, of the algae? And I'm sure there is. And so, um, so it's kind of a nice little project. And that's just how I was, I was thinking about it the other day, how no one's paying me to do this research and I'm just doing it for free. And I was like, it doesn't matter. It, to me, that's fun. Like to go out and measure the algae and the typos is fun. Like, like that's, and, and that's why I love science because of that whole question. I can ask a question. I now have the tool, you know, after getting a PhD, I know all the tools I need to answer whatever question pops up. And, and effectively I could, I could do anything uh, with those tools and ask any question. And that's what mm -hmm. I love about my job. I don't get paid that well. And I, I actually really love teaching too. That's part of it too. But, um, but yeah, that, that's, what's kind of magical about science is, is you yeah. can just go out and ask questions. And Absolutely. Not, not to get too off track for a second, but you said that flatworm doesn't have a name. Don't, wouldn't you get to name it? Don't, since you found it, don't you get to name it? I could. Um, so it ends up naming species is a, is a very particular uh, field called taxonomy. And um, 
being a taxonomist is a real pain in the butt. <laughs> and so uh, you have to go through all the museum collections, make sure that there's no name on this thing, which, which, which effectively I've done to some extent. And then you have to write a description. And so you have to like, and for flatworms, it's all about their reproductive organs. What is the shape of their reproductive organs? And you have to draw it out. Um, and then, and then you could name it. Yeah. And so I could, but it's a real pain in the butt. And a creature isn't named until it's been, it, that description has been published on paper, which is really interesting because, because the rules around taxonomy now are, are kind of being argued about because some people want to do taxonomy on the internet. Right. And so they want to publish their papers just on the internet. And, but the rule, the classic, and these rules have been around for, you know, hundreds of years basically how to name a species um, is that it must be published. And so it must be printed on paper. And so, um, yeah, I could, I could name it if I wanted to spend um, some time writing that paper. Um, I know people who do taxonomy in their retirement because <laughs> it ends up that it's, it's time consuming and, uh, and a pain in the butt, but it's kind of neat to put a name on things. Um, I have friends who are taxonomists. So, so what I typically do is I'll send them new species that I find. Uh, it's probably the cheating way. Um, but yeah, it ends up that sure. If you find it, you could name it, but, um, it's a, it's a lot of work to, to actually name something. Mm -hmm. That, that would be cool to name it. You could name it the, the Greg worm or. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's all these rules. And so you're not supposed to name things after yourself because that seems improper. But yeah, you can name it after like <laughs> I know someone who named a fish after his mom. Right. There was a fish um, a couple of years ago named after Obama. Um, yeah, you can name all sorts of things. I It ends up that I work so much on worms and I, I found so many new species that I sent to my friends who are taxonomists. But there's actually a flatworm named after me. It's called Isozoan Raphaeli. Um, and that's <laughs> from Belize. I collected it in Belize. So yeah, yeah. It's uh, And who knew that I would have a worm named after me in my lifetime, but you know, crazier things have happened. Wow, that's really cool. Um, so I, I have another maybe question here. To go back to, you're talking about this kind of unknown frontier that you found with the, the flatworms. And, you know, maybe a, a two-part question here is first, what, what is maybe jumping to corals? Where is the border? Where is the, the unknown? And what are you working on? And then maybe after that, we can get into why, you know, why it's so important. But really, like, where are the, what are the questions you're asking? And where are the, you know, areas that we don't know things about coral? Yeah, yeah. So, so just a you know, the reason I study corals is because they're the foundation species of this whole ecosystem, right? Coral reefs. And that ecosystem is super rich in diversity that we don't understand. And so I've focused a lot of my research on coral reefs just for that reason. I think we're at a, at a uh, inflection point in diversity on the planet, right? And while there's a ton of standing diversity, things that we haven't even named yet, probably we've named about a million species it's probably about 10 million species on the planet. So we've done one tenth of our job. Um, um, and so you can imagine that as, as biodiversity is being lost due to human disturbance and climate change, that we're losing some of those things that have never been named. And so for me, that's a really pressing issue. Like we need to save coral reefs as long as possible so we can find all the creatures that live in coral reefs and actually understand what they do and what they are. Um, and their potential to help humans really. Um, and, and so I think um, that's why I study corals and then, and then corals are really complex. They're, they're very simple organisms uh, you would say body plan wise, um, but they've been around for five and a half million years. So clearly they've uh, survived many changes in our, our world and climate. Um, and and they're a really unique sort of, well, not unique, but um, they're a great example of this really interesting symbiosis. So a coral is an animal. Think of it as a jellyfish stuck on the bottom of the ocean. Um, and it will catch food that floats by it with its tentacles, but it also hosts an algae, a plant that lives inside of its tissue. And so that plant photosynthesizes and it makes sugar basically. And it gives the coral sugar and then the coral gives that plant a home. And so you can think of it like renting, right? The plant is renting space in the coral um, with by paying sugar as the rent and the coral is giving it a place to live. Um, 
that idea that this relatively simple body plan organism animal can live with this algae is amazing and, and super complex. So what are the rules that regulate that symbiosis that, that regulate those two things living together? We know it's really successful because there's something like 700 species of corals that do this. Um, and we know that climate change is impacting it directly because that's what coral bleaching is. Coral bleaching is when those algae leave the coral. And, and so the corals turn white because they no longer have the photosynthesizing algae in their tissue. Issues. It's just like um, if if, a, if you were renting an apartment and you didn't pay rent, you get you get evicted, <laughs> right? Because you're not paying rent anymore. And so um, and and so I'm really interested in how that symbiosis is driven. Um, what are the biological processes that sort of glue that whole complex unit together? And you can imagine that <clears throat> that the complexity is is further complexified um, by the diversity of corals, right? And so there's many different corals and they all have different strategies and they live in different places. And, and so it's, it's exactly that complexity that I'm excited about. Um, I think I've probably one of the main areas of research I've done is coral reproduction. And so how do corals make new babies? Cause I'm really interested in if a coral reef is devastated, even by a natural thing, like a hurricane is natural and that's really bad for coral reefs how does it recover? How does, how do the corals come back to a habitat? How do they, um, and to me, that's the critical thing that's missing in the current sort of coral reef crisis. Um, some corals can resist stress and they'll survive high temperatures and bleaching. Um, but we don't see a lot of new corals coming into habitats. Why is that? What's broken down of this recruitment phase? Um, so I do a lot of research on coral larvae. That's cool. Again, something not a lot of people have seen, but I've seen coral spawning. And so you go underwater at night uh, after the full moon in the summer months and, and the corals release their eggs and sperm in the water. Corals are stuck on the bottom, right? They can't move. And so if this coral wants to reproduce with this coral, it can't reach out, right? And so what happens is it ends up releasing its eggs and sperm in the water and then they mix and then, and then they make coral babies. Um, so that's a big aspect of my research uh, because I'm interested in this sort of recovery process. And so I use a bunch of tools, you know, I use classic ecology. I just measure sort of how big and wide a coral is uh, and, and when it spawns, you know, I use a watch to measure when it spawns. That's important data because we still don't know that much about different species of coral. Um, but then I also use genomics because I'm interested in the, in the genomic underpinning of, of resistance. Why do some corals resist coral bleaching and others don't? Um, so I've done like a gene expression experiment using RNA-seq to understand that. Um, and I've used, uh, corals have a very, because they're stuck on the bottom and they're reproducing, you can imagine if two or three different species are all reproducing at the same time, there might be hybridization. And so we can use genomics to see, uh, to, to delineate species boundaries between corals. And we find that it's pretty mushy. Some species reproduce with each other, even if they look really different. Um, so I use genetic genomics to study those kinds of things. I really like um, these fancy new tools of genomics. I guess they're not that new, but um, they give you so much data. Um, and they, I think you can answer these unprecedented questions that you couldn't answer before. So for me, that's, that's the really uh, great tool. It's a little more expensive than classic ecology. Um, but it's also more revealing. I think you get a ton of interesting data. Where do you see, where do you see healthy reefs? You, you've been sort of all over the place. And where do you see, you know, reefs that are not looking, I know, you know, South Florida is notoriously maybe not looking so good at the moment. Um, where in the world are, are sort of, you know, healthy and unhealthy populations? I know that the number of healthy ones is shrinking. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, and so in, in, uh, God, you know, it's, it's very sites, but so even within a place like Cuba, right, there can be, uh, mostly unhealthy reefs. And then there's a Marine reserve there, the garden of the Queens, I think it's called, that's really healthy and, and doing really well. And so it really varies. Um, overall the Caribbean as a general rule, the Caribbean has been much more impacted than the Pacific. And so the Caribbean reefs are kind of hurting, um, while the Pacific reefs, are doing better in some places. <laughs> and so, you know, um, I think, and I think that's partially a function of size. So you can imagine the Great Barrier Reef is huge. And in 2015 and 16, 50% of the corals died, half the corals died, but it was such a big space 
that there's still way more corals there than there is anywhere else, right? And so you could say that that's healthy, but it's not as healthy as it was. Um, my, probably my favorite place to, to scuba dive is um, either Papua New Guinea or Palau. Um, and those are all small island nations in the, in the Pacific Ocean. And I think they both, I think both of those um, sort of have this unique situation of being in the really super diverse area around Indonesia um, and also having low human populations. And so less sort of human pressures on the reefs and those reefs look really good. Um, and they tend to bounce back after disturbance. So everything's getting disturbed um, at some level from climate change. Um, but those reefs seem to be more resistant than others for now, at least. So we just talked about the corals and you're using um, molecular biology tools to sort of understand how they're surviving or not surviving. And to go off of that, you know, there's, there's this future of, you know, we have CRISPR now and genetic engineering. And for those of you who are listening who don't know um, what CRISPR is, you can, there's a lot of stuff on the news about it. You can check it out. Um, but basically it's a tool to genetically engineer organisms more accurately and, you know, cheaper. So do you see, and in theory, there's a future where humans can really edit things to their liking. You know, you can imagine a world where you could, you know, maybe, I don't know how exactly possible this is, but you could imagine a world where you could print almost like print things, but from a molecular perspective and make your own um, organisms from start to finish. Do you see a future or are we already doing this where we're implanting genetically engineered corals or things into ecosystems? And do you think that's effective? And do you think that's where we're going? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's, it's extremely effective in the creatures we're doing it with right now. And so you can think of corn, right? We are genetically modifying corn. We have made huge cornfields throughout the globe that are dominating those areas where we have cornfields, right? And, and we've used genetic engineering or even just selective breeding, which isn't so targeted as CRISPR, but, but we know how to do it pretty well. And we've been doing uh, selective breeding for thousands of years um, to modify organisms for the traits that we like. So corn has gotten bigger, has more kernels, um, it grows faster and all those kinds of things. And then, and then we, we've built this environment for it, right? We fertilize it with exactly the things it likes. We water it all the time. We keep the other weeds away from it. And so we've, it's, it's given us the capacity to grow way more corn than, um, than anything else. Um, and, and so, yeah, I could see those principles being applied to a lot of other organisms. I think it's a, it's an interesting, uh, uh, I won't say dangerous, but it's an interesting pathway to take. Right. And so um, you, there's multiple things going on for one the corn that we've made is for features that we want. And so it, it grows really big and strong so that we can eat it, not because it makes it a better competitor in a natural environment, right? And so, uh, and I kind of see this in our society. I think what's happening is that humans are taking over some percentage of the world, um, let's say 50% for, for the sake of argument. And, and that uh, if we were smart, if we were doing it wisely, uh, we would leave the other 50% pristine and, and native and we'd have species interacting in, in the classic forests and oceans that they had always been doing. And then that would give us a human landscape and a pristine landscape. And so far we're not doing that at all. We're, we're <laughs> harvesting things from the ocean um, that, you know, in excess and, and we're cutting down trees in excess. Um, but I think that we're, there's been sort of a revolution in the last 10 years where people realize what they're doing <laughs> and you can kind of track this with like dams, right? So in the Pacific Northwest in the fifties, the, 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 all the civil engineers said, we need more dams. We need more dams. And then they built all these dams. Some rivers had like 10 dams all the way up them. And that's a great way to get power, but it ends up, we don't need that much power. And so now they're going back and saying, well, actually to have all the salmon that used to live in these streams, we need free flowing water. So now we should take out those dams. And so 
and, and that's actively going on. There's a few rivers. Um, I know that there was an Elwha Dam really, uh, that was torn down a few years ago and they're talking about it, I think on the Russian river or somewhere. Um, and, and so that's going on right now. And so I, I see that, that maybe we've, you know, if, if 50% of the land is human and 50% is native, we've already taken over 80% of the land, but I think we're, we're starting to get smart and, and we're going to be driven back to, to be about 50 and 50 is kind of an arbitrary number. EO Wilson is this really famous uh, entomologist who studies biodiversity and he's really pushing for 50% of the planet should be a, a preserve, you know, and some other people are saying 30% is enough. You know, right now, I think we preserve like 2%. <laughs> and so clearly we're nowhere even close to that. And, and whether we'll ever have the political will to do that, I don't know. But, but I think it makes sense to me. And so I, what I worry about is that once you genetically engineer a group of organisms, um, you have actually reduced their diversity. And so by making them, giving them some very specific traits in their genome, you've reduced the number of random variable traits. And, and, and so you can think of humans as sort of, an, uh, uh, sort of a force of selection, right? And so we're, we're selecting for creatures to have this trait, but that trait isn't necessarily the best for survival in the natural world. It might be the best for survival in a cornfield, um, but it's not great for being eaten by rabbits, right? Or, or, or whatever. And so, um, so we're actually reducing the genetic, genetic diversity when we do this. And I think that's a mistake. And, and that's why I think we need sort of natural wild places because they will maintain the genetic variability that's inherent in, in persistence of an organism. And so it ends up that that genetic sort of richness and variability is the force that, that um, selection is acting on. And for an organism to persist, let's say through a disease, um, you want the population to have a really rich variety of genetic genotypes, basically. And so I think I think we're making the mistake of eliminating some of those genotypes when we do genetic engineering. But I think if we had a reserve, we had a place over here where corn could do its own thing without being in the cornfields and without mixing with those those genotypes, I think that would be a way forward. Um, and that's kind of where I see it happening. There's been some talk about doing this in corals. In fact, my, um, my advisor, um, I got my PhD in Hawaii and Ruth Gates um, was my advisor and she got a grant to do basically selective breeding in corals with the idea that we should um, know how to make a coral that is resistant to climate change. And, and I had this discussion with her. I was like, well, doesn't that reduce genotypic diversity, isn't that bad for, for persistence? And she's like, sure, yes, but if all the corals are dead, what <laughs> other choice do we have? Like, like we need to know how to repair an ecosystem when when the place goes to hell in a handbasket, right? And so her, her argument was that understanding how to selectively breed corals and maybe even genetically engineering corals is a tool that we have in modern society. And we should know how to use that tool, right? We need to, to build our knowledge base to use that tool. Um, and that's, and that's important for us. We don't necessarily decide right now that we need to use that tool, but we need to have it in our toolbox for in a hundred years when there's only two species of coral left. Uh, we want to make sure that those species can, can persist. It's, it's better than, than extinction is basically her argument. And I, I see that. I think she's right. I think we need to have built a big toolbox right now because things are starting to disappear. We're in the middle of a mass extinction event and we need to understand uh, how we might be able to save them as that extinction event continues to get um, further and further. You don't want to, you don't want to risk just trying to, you know, genetically engineer the corals, but forget about the things that are making them die in the first place too. Uh, yeah. And that's a serious problem. I, I, and, and this is like my big beef with coral reef restoration right now is that like, there's a huge movement right now to restore the Florida Keys and they're growing corals in a nursery and they're not using genetic engineering or anything. They're just taking fragments of what's sort of magical about corals is you can take a piece of it and it will continue to grow. Um, but it's the same genotype. So if you split a coral into a hundred individual pieces, that's great. You have a hundred corals, but they're all the same exact genotype. So you haven't maximized genetic recombination. You haven't, you haven't um, maximized genetic diversity. And so um, 
and and then they go out and they plant those hundred corals, but they haven't fixed the problem with the Florida Keys is is climate change, but also um, there's really big human impact of sewage release and and nutrients in the Florida Keys. They haven't fixed those problems, so they keep planting corals and then they keep dying. And they're like, well, but we're gonna go back and plant some more corals, you know? And and it's sort of like, yeah, well, you've got to fix the environment uh, that's causing the mortality of the coral before you can actually replace the corals. Um, so I think we're kind of stuck in that cycle right now. It's some Sisyphusian uh, challenge, right? Push the boulder up the hill and then it rolls back down. And, and as these things die, I think a really cool, you know, sort of around the molecular bio biology and the sort of unknown area, as these things start to die off, you, I listened to a YouTube video that you had a lecture on, you know, medicines from the sea. So what kind of what kind of stuff are we are we missing out on when you know corals and like you said the um, the flatworm that you studied if these things start to die that we haven't discovered yet you know potentially is there there are medicines and compounds that may be able to help us um, in the world and then why also why is it important to find them there and why don't we just you know find them on our own like in a lab yeah I think. I think there's sort of a comp and, and, and we are doing that, right? Like we're discovering medicines in the lab. And um, I think it's, uh, a, there's a, there's an inherent diversity in, in biology that we can't sort of recreate in the lab. So we've been, you can imagine we've been looking for medicines from terrestrial organisms forever. Right. And this is kind of the field of ethnobotany. And so um, tribal groups knew that this tree over here, uh, if you ate the bark of it, it, it was aspirin and it made your headache go away. Right. Um, and so that kind of knowledge has been around for thousands of years because people have been eating random things. <laughs> um, but underwater, uh, we haven't been able to go underwater to look for novel chemicals and, and medicines really very much and, until scuba was invented in the in the 50s 60s so you can imagine we've only had you know 50 or 60 years underwater to look for these compounds and and our technology is much better now for chemistry and so i think that field is really growing i think the the medicines from the sea is really exciting because it's a way to show that biodiversity is important for people. And so it ends up that the more diversity of organisms you have, the more diversity of compounds they make, right? Because some organism might be able to make a terpene, which is kind of a linear carbon thing. Um, and other organisms might make a different type of compound. But basically the gen the 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 chemical engineering, the, the building blocks of each of those compounds is really unique among organisms. So really when you're looking for chemical diversity, you want biologic diversity. Um, and these compounds are made not to be human medicines, but for sort of um, sex and warfare with the creatures, right? And so their pheromone might attract another creature. That's a chemical signal. That chemical might be really useful for us. Um, toxins, right? Like, like uh, snake venom, um, that's clearly not a medicine, um, but uh, it didn't evolve to be a medicine, but, but now we can manipulate its structure to, to be a really important medicine. And so, yeah, I think it's a really exciting field uh, because it's so un, unexplored and there's so many new creatures that we don't even have a name. So how could we ever know what com compounds are in them? Because we don't even know what they are yet. And so um, we're kind of at this stage of, of trying to discover as many new compounds as possible um, without... Uh, even knowing what diversity of creatures there is, there is underwater. So, so that's, a, that's kind of a, I think, cutting edge of that field and, and the research I did. so I worked in a natural products lab for about 10 years at the Smithsonian. And we were really looking at sort of the stationary things. So things that are stuck on the bottom of the ocean, sponges and algae, because they can't get up and run away from predators or herbivores, they would get eaten. And so those things are known to be rich in these compounds um, and I think one of the compounds from a, cyan a benthic cyanobacteria is in clinical trials for anti-cancer um, properties. And so, so there, is, there, there are some medicines waiting to be discovered underwater. And I think there's probably a lot of them. Um, and, and we're just sort of figuring that out. So that, that to me is a really exciting sort of aspect of biodiversity. It's something that we should cherish biodiversity because it could actually help humans, not just because, I mean, I cherish biodiversity because it's amazing. And again, this curiosity piece, right? It's like, oh my God, there's so many things. Um, and, and at some extent it's beautiful aesthetically. Um, 
but but for humans i think it's really important as as a source of novel medicines and that could really help our society um in in many ways so yeah yeah that's a that's a that's an exciting field that i think is growing right now it's not um something that we've really explored very much it's it's funny to me to think of humans back in the day sort of just kind of you know you can't do this in the ocean because you can't breathe in the ocean um but running around like just eating like random things like they had yeah. to be doing this to find stuff out <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So how many like people were out there just like tasting a plant and how many died from being poisoned, right? (laughs) Like, how do you figure out that this bark is aspirin? You had to have chewed the bark, right? And so, so that's a real challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. But a lot of, you know, a lot of our medicines, I think it's almost 50% are from natural sources. And so it's, it's, and mostly trees and plants uh, in the terrestrial environment. There's a, there's a really important anti-cancer medicine, Taxol, that comes from an evergreen tree. And, uh, and, and so it's a really good source of medicines, even though people think that all the medicines, you know, come in a pill bottle and that was made in a lab. It ends up that you know, penicillin, right? Classic example of bread mold making penicillin. I think these um, natural sources of medicines are, are actually really important. And, and in some ways they're more creative than humans just sort of mixing chemicals together in a lab. There's a lot of fungi. There's a lot of medicine and fungi as well. Yeah. Um, a, a question I had for you too that I was thinking of is: Are there is there fungi in the underneath, like in the water? Do they live in the ocean? Yeah, yeah, there is, and they and they're really poorly studied, and so we don't know very much about the diversity of them. There's a really good professor at um, University of Hawaii that I collaborated a little bit with, and he studies marine fungi, and and they're quite diverse and and very understudied, and so there's some really interesting things, and some of them make natural chemicals just like the terrestrial ones. And so a few people are researching those, not many. It's kind of a, a, an obscure little field right now, but I imagine it will grow. One of the, one of the most crazy okay. examples to me of humans finding that out before, before science is, I don't know if you've ever heard of ayahuasca, but it's a compound. It has DMT in it and it's a compound yeah. um, that the only way to make this compound, it doesn't, it occurs naturally in a lot of plants, but the only way to make it is to find like the bark of one tree that grows in a completely different place, a root of another thing that grows in a completely different place and like five or six other ingredients. And then to cook it, you know, sort of like chemistry to like heat it at a certain temperature for a certain amount of time. And the, the things that are in the thing aren't even edible in the first place. So they don't taste good. They're, they're not nutritious. So one of the things that really blows my mind like what were these people back then doing and right they're just like throwing things in a pot (laughs) and then like oh well that's that has a cool effect (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i don't know that's it's so interesting the whole ethnobotany like field of of traditional knowledge is really interesting to me because yeah how did that arrive like who was the guinea pig got you know was there somebody who did something really terrible and he was in jail and then they just started feeding him leaves you know <laughs> like <laughs> try this one what happens <laughs> absolutely and we're sort of doing that with, with science now you know in a, in a different way in a, in a probably safer more organized way kind of maybe some of the chaos maybe some of the the unknown is good uh, just kind of like you said stumbling upon a, a worm and oh this has like you know toxins in it it's like the chaos is maybe beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, as we discover more, it ends up that underwater um, chemistry is way more important than anything else because that's the, how things signal each other. And so you can't um, it's harder to see underwater, right? Because it can be murky or there can be a lot of sediment. And so things are, are much less visual. There's fewer visual cues and many more chemical cues. Uh, sound is important too, but most creatures can't produce a sound. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's a different environment, which I think forces creatures in, to, to have novel adaptations, you know? And so this chemistry thing is underwater is I think really important and, and probably we underestimate it because we're so used to a visual world. And you can imagine a dog is much more of a chemistry sort of world than we are right like it can smell way better than we can and it's you see it walking along sniffing the it's sniffing things that we have no idea were there and so there's there and that's a chemical sense and so 
the, the sort of natural products world is very, um, it focuses you on this thing that humans aren't really used to because we don't use our noses that much. Um, but yeah, it's an important aspect of, of biology, especially underwater. It's crazy how different the world worlds are. So, yeah, so- yeah. And, it, and it's actually one of the things I love about being doing marine biology is going underwater. Like the minute you put that scuba regulator in your mouth and you dive underwater, the whole world is different. You're, you're pretty much weightless. Uh, so you're like flying <laughs> and then it's a completely alien environment. None of the same things are underwater. You know, there's no trees and grass. It's all algae and corals or, or whatever, you know, here it's kelp beds and it's beautiful for me. It's like, it's the closest thing to, to traveling to a different planet. And I think that's amazing. Like that sense of exploration is really fun too. I got to, once I got to go in this, um, kind of a touristy sub um but they wanted the researchers to pay to use it and oh i can't hear you did you mute oh yeah sorry i just wanted to stop you for a second i don't know if you can hear it but i've been hearing like a loud like psh. i don't know if you can tell i don't know if it's on my end or on your end um but it was just it was going like Maybe oh, maybe know. we're good now. I yeah. think we might be good now. Maybe it was me uh, playing with my pen. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was like a static, like from a microphone or something. But I think it's I think it's good. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, uh, no worries. Yeah, we want the sound quality to be good, right? Um, yeah. What was I saying? So we were talking about. I kind of got distracted. Um, Oh, about the, you know, the different, the wide world of being underwater versus. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so for me, it's like going underwater is like a a whole different world. Right. And it's, 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 it's better than going to Mars or the moon because there's all this life that's there. And so every time I go underwater, I think it's a, it's a, it's sort of a journey. Um, And that's one of the things that I think is kind of magical. Another thing that I think is magical about my job is that sort of exploring a different environment. Right. And it's almost as dangerous too, especially if you're deep. It's almost like yeah, you're an astronaut. Yeah, it can be really dangerous. Yeah, and a lot of my friends, my colleagues at um, the Cal Academy, they do deep diving. And so they're using like trimix special gas mixes and they're going down to 300 feet. It's, it's kind of an amazing thing. And they collect new fish, right? And they find new species every time they go. And they, I think they spend about 10 minutes at 300 feet and then they, it takes them eight hours to decompress on the way back up. So a full day to go for 10 minutes at 300 feet. But you can imagine it's, a, it's, it, that is literally like exploring the frontiers of where life can go. And so when I was, um, I was in Curacao and I got to go in a submarine that's mostly for tourists, but they're trying to convince scientists that um, we should pay to use the submarine. And so they gave us a free trial. So I got to go down to a thousand feet and, and you're sitting in this glass bubble, you know, and you're looking at a thousand feet and it's all dark and there's all these weird fish and urchins are on, you know, long spines. And it's just a really different world. And I was struck by like, oh my God, this is, this is not close, but, but on our planet and nobody gets to see this. <laughs> it's really, uh, it was really amazing. Really interesting. Which is why I think underwater photography and you know, things like planet earth are so, so powerful and like so important. It's, you know, yeah. it's, people don't get to see it other than photos and videos. Yeah. And that's what I, I love. So I take a lot of pictures and I love it. And and I think for me, that's what's special about it is I can bring that crazy weirdness to, to people, right? In the picture, like, oh my gosh, this thing is so weird and it lives underwater and you would never see it any other way except my picture, right? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So crazy. So maybe a few sort of ending questions here for you. The first one I've got is what do you have, like what advice do you have for an undergraduate like myself or someone who's, you know, either getting into science or just going about life? Um, that's, you know, someone my age, what's advice that you could give them? Yeah. Um, I would say try a lot of different things. (laughs) So my path to, to being, you know, a scientist and professor was not a clear straight path at all. And I'm really proud of that. I think, uh, it was great. I lived in Guam, right. This little Island in the middle of nowhere. I lived in Hawaii, um, another Island in the middle of nowhere, not quite so obscure. Um, 
and that was all, those were all really enriching experiences for me, just going and trying something different. And so I think don't, um, don't assume that you know what your career is now until you've had a chance to just try some different things and, and sort of experience the world. I'm really happy. Um, and this kind of just happened randomly that I had a lot of time to explore and, and, and build sort of a career, um, before I had my son, because my son is, is now sort of the focus of my life, which I really value. But I think that I've had enough rich experiences when I was younger that I feel like I'm very accomplished and now I can really focus on him. And so for me, that was the right time. You know, some people have children really young and then they do more things when they're older. And so I, I chose kind of the opposite. So my, my advice for you guys is, is, you know, pursue the things that you're really excited about. I think, I think there are some advantages to getting paid really well. You know, you can have a nice house and you don't have to worry about money and, and all that stuff. But if you don't enjoy your job, it's not worth it. You know, I had a job as a secretary for, for about a year and it was terrible. It's the most boring thing I ever did. And, and right now I really love my job and I don't get paid that much, but it's, it's fun. Like every day I go to work, I'm, I have fun and, and I'm really excited about it. So yeah, find the thing that drives you. Don't, don't just pursue sort of the biggest paycheck because, because, in five or 10 years, you'll be like, this sucks and I'm going to move on. Right. So find something that you really like to do. Oh, sorry. You're muted again. That's good advice. I'm, I'm looking for that right now and I'm trying to figure out what that is for me. Um, we'll find it yeah, eventually. And I don't think, and I don't think you will, will know what that is. I don't think anyone knows what it is. You know, I think your parents will tell you, you should be a doctor and you're like, well, okay, maybe, but, but you just have to try things. Like you don't know until you try stuff. And so just get like a, a internship somewhere and, you know, uh, or, or go travel. I, I was really lucky to just like, I actually finished my college degree a, a semester early. I was done in the fall semester. So I didn't have to take, so I took three months and backpacked around Central America. Like what a fun thing to do, right? Like, uh, and I was living on, you know, $20 a day. I, I didn't need much money. Um, but that was a really great experience. And, 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 uh, and then I was a secretary at a big power company for a while and I hated it, but that was a really important, you know, don't think of anything you do as a failure. That was an important learning lesson for me. I could be a good secretary. I was capable of doing it, but it was a terrible job and I don't want to do it. And so, and that made me sort of go on and get my master's degree and, and, and sort of pursue biology because I realized that was really fun and exciting for me. So try yeah, I, I, important. I love to talk more about the backpacking here, but I think we're running out of time. Um, uh-huh. I love to backpack though. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so the last, the last question, just for everyone out there who's still made it to the end. Thank you guys. Um, that, so what, resources can people use? Can they go to maybe like somewhere to learn about, you know, just marine biology in general or a place to like, you know, make a change and donate or like a good organization? Yeah, there's a ton of things on the internet, you know, places to go. I think the Nature Conservancy and uh, Wildlife Foundation and those kind of places are really good organizations. You got to be kind of careful when you donate money because some... Some environmental sort of companies spend a lot of money on administration without actually doing anything, if you know what I mean. And so you got to kind of be careful where you, where you put your money and, and your time. I love the like AmeriCorps model. Go out and volunteer or, or um, even Peace Corps. Go travel the world and volunteer and help someone. <laughs> you know, if, if you have an extra year or two, just um, uh, do that and, and just sort of learn from those experiences. I I find that in my life, the most I've ever learned is from traveling. It's not from books and classes um, and just seeing how other people live and, and what sort of environment they're in is really important for me to appreciate sort of global human diversity and, and that stuff. And, and so I really value that sort of traveling experience I had when I was younger. That was really great. Um, and then there's a ton of websites, you know, about, about marine biology that you can look up. Um, clearly there's classes you can take. I taught marine ecology last, last uh, year at, at Santa Clara, and those are good um, introductions to, to marine, marine biology. I think, I think um, yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of interesting things. There's some good books. Carl Safina is a really good writer who writes a lot about marine sort of environmental topics. 
Uh, he's a Pew fellow because he's a great writer. And, uh, and there's some, you know, um, if you're interested in sort of conservation, this EO Wilson's a really good guy just for global conservation. And then um, Sylvia Earle is kind of one of the, the forefront women in, in marine conservation. And she's really great. She has a great website and she's really active and um, she's involved in politics and lobbying and all that stuff. So she's made a great difference for the marine environment. Um, people like that you can find mostly on the internet. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that. That's a good list. And also guys go check out raftswall.com. Dr. Ritz Williams website. website. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's really great. There's a lot of really cool pictures and stuff on there and it's a, a cool website if you want to go check it out. And that marks the end of the episode. So yeah, thank you. Cool. Thank you, Brandon, for, for chatting. And that will mark the end of this episode. And thank you guys for tuning in, especially if you made it here. Um, yeah. Reminder, gentle reminder to go like and subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. It means a lot. It'll show up in your feed. Whenever I post something new, it's good for you, and it's good for me. Anyway, I love you all if you're listening to this. Seriously, take it easy. Peace and love, everybody. Bye-bye. And we'll end it with a dreamy little tune called Time to Dream.